This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to talk about homelessness in older adults, and it's hard to walk around just about any city in this country, but particularly the West Coast and the East Coast big coastal cities, and not see the enormous number of tents and people living outdoors. And you may have noticed, like I did, that people no longer look, the folks who are living in their tents don't really look like they're young adults anymore. They look like they're older. And so I'm going to talk to you about the fact that what you're seeing is true and talk a little bit about how that came to be, what the consequences are, and what we can do about it. As one of the participants in my study said, I'm old and I'm tired and I got my disability. I can't, I can't do it no more. So we're going to talk briefly about why the population is aging, introduce you very, very briefly to a study that I'm doing in Oakland um, to look at the phenomenon of homelessness in older adults, talk a little about who is homeless, um, who, which older adults are homeless in Oakland, how people wind up in, home, uh, in homelessness, experiencing homelessness as older adults, speak a little bit about the health status of people who experience homelessness, talk about what happens to them in terms of housing, and then because a talk can be relentlessly depressing, I want to actually end with some interventions or some solutions, some to-dos to take home. So first of all, the homeless population is in fact aging. In 1990, when I started doing work around homelessness, we really talked about this as a problem of young young adults. And at the time, 11% of the people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco were over 50. In 2003, by the time we stopped this first study, 37% were. Now it seems like about half of people, single adults, experiencing homelessness are 50 and older. We wrote up this study. It got a fair amount of press. And a colleague of mine, Dennis Culhane, who's a demographer at the University of Pennsylvania, who basically has big uh, demography skills and sort of thought, well, this is really interesting. Let me see if it's true otherwise, and let me see why it is. And what he found, um, doing studies of shelter usage and homeless systems across the whole country, was that Americans born in the second half of the baby boom, so people born in the period between about 54 and 63, have had an elevated risk of homelessness throughout their lifetime. So this is that line that talks about what this population was in 1988. And you can see, if you can see the little numbers at the bottom, in 1988, when this group was in their 20s and maybe early 30s, that's where the big peak of homelessness was. Now the big peak of homelessness is amongst people in their 50s and their 60s. And it's estimated that about 30 to 40% of single adults experiencing homelessness were actually born in that one age cohort. And since there are some folks who are older, we think about half of single adults who experience homelessness are 50 and older. I just want to be clear when I'm talking about homeless single adults, it's it's weird terminology, and it doesn't actually refer so much to marital status as it refers to how we think of homelessness. You'll hear people talk sometimes about homeless families. When they say that, they mean parents with minor children, homeless youth who are like the kids in the Haight-Ashbury youth, 12 to 25, who are without parents, and everyone else, whether they're married or partnered or not, is a homeless single adult, and that's what I'm referring to. So you may may ask yourself, why is this true? You can imagine several reasons why this would be true. This was a generation, those born in the late half of the baby boom, who've really caught a lot of bad luck. They came of age during an unpopular war. 
They further came of age during a big drug epidemic, the cocaine epidemic. They um, they entered the workforce during a major recession, and we know that when people enter the workforce in a major recession, they never quite regain the amount of income that they would have if they had entered the workforce earlier or later. But I want to point out some other things. This chart is a chart of how much, how we spend our federal dollars, and specifically how we spend our federal dollars for low-income individuals. And you will notice that every other line, except that thick, dark line, is going way up um, when we talk talk about food and nutrition assistance, social services, or Medicaid. The feds have spent a lot more over time on the poverty population. But you'll notice in that dark um, black line at the bottom that actually housing expenditures have not kept up. And in fact, since the late 70s, there has been a very quiet backing off of the federal government of housing as something that we sort of feel like we support. It used to be that many, much greater proportion of the population lived in a form of subsidized housing for low-income individuals than do now. Now what we know is that three out of four low-income renters don't get, who follow, qualify for federal um, housing assistance, don't get it. So to qualify for federal housing assistance, you have to meet many criteria that don't really work for regions like ours where housing is so expensive, meaning many people who still can't afford housing wouldn't even qualify in our region. But the issue is, even amongst people who qualify, three out of four don't receive any assistance whatsoever. If you look at this problem another way, you can look at how many households, how, ma how many rental units there are for extremely low-income individuals. These are individuals who make between 0 and 30% of the area median income. And then they look at what you can spend in rent, which is thought to be 30% of your income, and how many um, housing units in the rental market are available. We in California have the somewhat dubious honor of being at the bottom of the barrel. For every 100 families who meet that area median income of less than 30%, we only have 21 units available for them. You can imagine that that just isn't enough. So what do people do? Well, people will spend half or two-thirds of their income on their housing, which leads very little else for other needs like health care, food, education, or other costs. But it also means that sometimes they just get squeezed out and wind up like we see in San Francisco on the streets of our city. I also think it's really important that we never talk about homelessness without talking about the insidious intersection between racism and housing in this country. I want to remind you that in this country, housing is a primary means of wealth building. How most families who have built wealth in this country have done it, one of the main ways they've done it is through real estate. And I want to remind you that there has been um, on the records, off the records, plenty of discrimination in home ownership starting way back where uh, uh, d d neighborhoods were segregated, where there was something called redlining, where they couldn't quite come out and say that if you were a black American, you couldn't get a mortgage. But what they could say is, if you lived in this neighborhood, we won't give you a mortgage. And lo and behold, those were the neighborhoods where black Americans were basically allowed to live because of discrimination. Um, predatory lending has really hit the African-American community harder than any other community. And and we now know that there's very um, good evidence for ongoing discrimination in the rental 
rental market, meaning that if you are a white person seeking to rent and you have a similar profile to a black person seeking to rent, you're much less likely, if you're the black person, to be sort of given that house to rent or that apartment to rent. You add to that notable discrimination in the criminal justice system and in the employment system, the educational uh, discrimination, it probably should come as no surprise that in this country, black Americans are three to four times increased risk of experiencing homelessness. And you really see that in a city like San Francisco, which has a relatively small black population, but the homeless population has, has a much larger proportion who are, who are African-American. So will this trend of homelessness continue? We know that the housing affordability crisis is particularly acute for those who are 50 and older. And among renters 50 and older, 30% spend more than half of their income in rent. This is called severe housing burden. If you're spending more than half of your income in rent, you really, A, don't have expenses, don't have money left for all of those other needs, but you also have very little of a rainy day fund, very little ability to weather any sort of crisis. Because of this, we expect the median age of homeless individuals to rise. Because I was interested in this study, I was able to get the National Institute of Health to um, sponsor a very large study of this problem in Oakland as a way to try to learn more about what led people into homelessness, what were the consequences, how they get out of it. Um, we enrolled 350 participants. We started enrollment in July 2013, and we ended in June 2014. And every six months, we see our participants back. Um, they had to be, people to be in our study had to be 50, and they had to meet the federal definition of homelessness when they entered our study. The study has been renewed, so we're going to continue it. We're going to keep going for another five years. And from the study, we learned some things about the older homeless population. Remember, to be in the study, you had to be 50. But as you can see, most people were between 50 and 64. Only 12% were 65 or over. I feel like that's a bit of a Rorschach test, whether you think that's good news or bad news, that 12% of the homeless individuals were 65 or older when they entered into our study. Not surprisingly, about three-quarters were men. We know among single homeless adults, men are at much higher risk than women. They have access to many fewer resources and are viewed sometimes as less, um, less deserving of our help. And I wanted to point out that 80% um, identified as African-American. Now, Oakland has a higher proportion of its population is African-American than in the country as a whole. About 28% of um, Oakland residents identify as African-American, but 80% of our participants did. And when we recruited, we recruited in all sorts of special ways to make sure that we were being representative of the population. As these numbers started to come in, I went back to my community advisory board and I said, am I doing something wrong? Four out of five of our participants are African-American, and each and every one of them said, well, that sounds about right. 90% of our participants had an income of less than $1,150 a month, but I want you to notice that when we enrolled them, 13% were working for pay for at least 20 hours a week, and another 28% were actively looking for a job. To answer the question of this aging homeless population, are these individuals folks who've been homeless since their 30s and 40s and stayed homeless this whole time, or people entering homelessness in older age? We asked a few different questions. One was, how long had it been since they had been last stably housed? Um, and we, what we meant by last stably housed was not the last time you had any housing, but the last time you had actually had a place that wasn't an institution, so not a hospital, not a prison, nothing like that, that you had lived in for at least a year. So this is actually a stricter definition of when did you become homeless. And even with that, you can see that a third of our participants had lost their last stable housing within the last year. 
When we asked people, you can also see 15% had been homeless um, for more than 10 years. We asked people why they had lost the last stable place that they had lived. The most common cause was simply economic. So 28% said they left because they could no longer pay their rent or their mortgage. I think what's interesting here is that 15% of our entire sample gave as their main reason for becoming homeless someone else who was contributing to their rent or mortgage could no longer pay. What this meant was a roommate lost their job, a marriage split up and their wife no longer paid, or their spouse or partner became ill or died. You can also see that 7% were evicted for reasons other than non-payment of rent or falling behind in rent. So these were evictions for non-economic reasons, things like owner move-ins as the city of Oakland was rapidly gentrifying. So then we were really interested in how people came to be homeless in their 50s and 60s and what had happened in their lives to get them that way. And if you remember one thing from this talk, I hope you remember this, which is we asked people the age that they first experienced homelessness as an adult. And what we found was that 44% of our participants had never once been homeless as an adult before they were at least 50. Now, to be in the study, you had to be 50 and you had to be homeless, but we didn't say anything of when you became homeless. You can see that an, an additional 20% or 19% became homeless in their 40s. I would like to say to you that even though the press and the media and politicians will also will often say homelessness is a result of mental health problems or substance use problems or sort of individual factors that lead to homelessness, someone who has stayed housed their entire life and doesn't have an episode of homelessness until they're 50 is probably not someone whose reason for being homeless was a severe lifelong mental health or substance use problem. And in fact, we found that there were real differences between those who had become homeless earlier in their lives versus later. So here we split the sample and looked at people who had become homeless for the first time any time before they were 50, 18 to 49, and compared them to people who had been homeless later. And what we found that those who had become homeless earlier had many more adverse life experiences. Many of them had very significant childhood adversity, meaning abuse, parental death, and other um, extreme experiences as a child. Many of them went on to have low-income attainment in early adulthood. They didn't really enter the job market with a bang. They usually had not gotten married, so they didn't have a spouse or partner. Many of them had pretty significant mental health problems, and those problems had started early in their lives. Many of them had experienced repetitive traumatic brain injury throughout their lives. Many of them had experience in our prison system, and many continue to have alcohol use problems as we saw them on the street. One of our participants, who had been homeless for many long time, was talking to us about um, his life. And this is what he said to us. Speaking about his childhood, I only did like five or six months in YA or the Youth Authority or Juvenile Justice System when I was 13. By the way, he was sent to juvenile justice for crimes like shoplifting and graffiti. But then after that, I started getting violations over the years. That's where the four years in the juvenile justice system came in at, going back and forth. Yeah, when I got to be 17, then they took me off. They took him out of the juvenile justice system. When I got 21, that's when I started using drugs. At that time, I was doing burglaries and all kinds of petty thefts. And I don't know, back then, it was like every 90 days, I end up back in San Quentin 
prison. It wasn't like, oh, I can't wait until I go get high or nothing like that, but eventually I got high. Then that one time led to another and a thousand other too many. So I was in that mentality, trapped in that mentality for other 40 years. Another of our participants who had become homeless as a young man said, my father said, next time, if you run away, I'll beat you with a car chain or I'm going to throw you out the window. Okay, so I was, I wouldn't use the word reasonable, but I put things in perspective real quick and I would say, could I survive a car chain? Probably not. Then I looked at the window and said, and we lived on the 13th floor. I said, I ain't playing with this man. He went to work. I had whatever I had on me and I was at the door. This was when he was a teenager, and he's never really regained stable housing. But those with late-onset homelessness had a very different story. Mostly they were people who had worked their whole lives, in fact, worked often two or three jobs, although it was generally low-wage work um, that wasn't very remunerative. They then experienced a crisis, and it was often one or two of these crises. Either they lost their job, their marriage broke up, their spouse or partner um, got ill, or they became ill, or their spouse, or interestingly, their mom died. These were also folks who tended to have lower levels of social support. They didn't have great relationships with their siblings in general or other people who might have been able to help them when they had a hard time. And many of them spoke very poignantly about the shame and stigma that they felt that they didn't actually tell anyone when they became homeless. This is um, an older gentleman in his 60s um, who... um, entered our study talking about him and his wife. It was a lot of different things, but basically the new owners took over. So he was being evicted because of an owner move-in. We were being evicted. My wife, she had just got out of the hospital, had the stroke and was blind. So the daughter came up and said, don't fight it. Y'all can come stay with me for a couple months and save your money. So we said, okay, and we didn't fight the eviction. After we moved out of the place, turned in the keys and everything, we went to her house, and she said, y'all can't stay here. And I said, I've got $9 in my pocket. I said, at least let your mother spend the night because we don't have enough money to get a hotel room. She said no. So that was the beginning. And this couple, the wife who had just had a stroke and was nearly blind, went and stayed under the bridge um, where they actually lived there for a few years until they eventually got housing. Another of our participants said, when they bought the company out, they cut our hours back, and they would bring in temp workers, and they would give them all the hours, and they weren't giving us our hours, which caused me to lose my place I was staying in because I couldn't afford to pay the rent. Because you know from when you're going from almost 80 to 100 hours a week, that's what he had been working, down to 20 hours a week, it's kind of hard to pay bills. So while the folks with late-onset homelessness tended to have fewer vulnerabilities, many did, however, experience significant health challenges related to their homelessness. And so once people became homeless, we saw that their health deteriorated pretty rapidly. And basically, every which way we measured it, they were in poor health. So one of the easiest ways to measure people's health was actually just to ask them, how would you rate your health? Uh, poor, fair, good, very good, or excellent. It winds up to be actually amazingly prognostic of how they're going to do. And in our study, 56% reported their health as fair or poor. Just to give you context, the only other population where you would get 56% saying their health was fair or poor would be older adults in their late 80s and 90s. It's a very high number. 
We found that many experience chronic diseases, although we expect that these were probably underreported because many had had poor access to care. So you can see that 45% told us that they had been diagnosed with arthritis, 21% with hepatitis or liver inflammation, 14% were living with diabetes, 19% with asthma, 5% with HIV or AIDS, 6% with a form of significant cancer diagnosis. But we also found that many had what we call functional impairments. Functional impairments measure not what diseases you have, but how you are. Can you bathe yourself? Can you get up and down out of a chair and things like that? And we found that 40% had what we call a limitation in activities of daily living. And most of those had two or more. If you have two or more activities of daily living, your risk of winding up in a nursing home in the next year is extremely high. When we asked about other things, which we call independent activities of daily living, taking a bus, could you find a lawyer if you needed to, could you fill out your health forms, we found that half had a significant impairment. The impairment wasn't just related to function. We also found a very high prevalence of cognitive impairment. These were tests that we did for memory problem and speed of thought and processing um, things that we did a bunch of testing for. So this wasn't just asking people. This was actually putting them through a battery of tests. We found that over a quarter of these individuals had significant impairments in global impairment. That includes memory, the ability to think through a problem, um, their ability to follow directions and the like. And an astonishing 35% had an impairment in something we call executive function. Executive function is the ability to follow a sequence of commands. For instance, if you want to get housing, you need to show up at this housing office between before noon on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, fill out a form, and take it to that office. That's exactly the type of thing that executive function impairs, but that's exactly what we ask these individuals to do. Even though the median age of our sample was 57, we found that the prevalence of geriatric conditions or problems associated with age were worse than we find in the general population of people in their 70s and 80s, leading me to say that amongst people experiencing homelessness, 50 is the new 75. Now, it's hard to give a talk about homelessness and not talk about drug use and alcohol use problems, and indeed, um, our participants had them, although what we found in those who became homeless late in life is that the problems often intensified after they became homeless. They weren't necessarily huge problems before they became homeless, but as a coping mechanism, they became much worse after they did. But what we found was that the prevalence of illicit drug and alcohol use problems were lower than samples in younger homeless adults. So it's lower than most people think of when they think about people experiencing homelessness, but it was definitely higher than age-matched population, than people in their 50s in the general population. And if you compare them to people in their 70s and 80s, who in many ways their health was similar to, it was dramatically higher. We found, not surprisingly, a high prevalence of mental health problems, including over a third with depression, about a third with post-traumatic stress disorder, 20% had been a psychiatric hospitalization, and about 5% had spent time in a psychiatric hospital in the previous six months. Perhaps not surprisingly, 
We've unfortunately seen a very high death rate. Of our initial 350 participants who were enrolled between 19, uh, 2013 and 2014, we now know that 29 have died, and unfortunately others are likely to die soon. We have many of our participants are living with metastatic cancer, strokes, heart attacks, kidney failures, and other life-limiting conditions. We have quite a few of our participants now live in nursing homes despite being in their late 50s. So what happened in terms of housing? Um, again, this is whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, but 24 months into the study, about half of people had regained housing. This 55% probably overestimates it a little bit because the people who we're still tracking down and couldn't find are probably more likely to be people who are homeless. But about half had achieved housing. 7% were living in an institution like a nursing home, and the rest remained homeless. So where were they housed? It turns out that about half of the people who got housed, so half got housed, and about half of those who got housed got housed with some assistance from the government, either through special housing for people who are chronically homeless, which is called permanent supportive housing, transitional housing, another form of housing for people who are homeless, or by getting a housing subsidy like a Section 8 voucher or moving into a public housing authority. The other half who regained housing actually regained housing with no support from the government whatsoever, either regaining housing on their own, being housed with family or friends, which was in fact one of the most common exits from um, housing, or moving into a hotel. Our study staff now spends several days a month in Stockton and other areas further east because many of our participants had left Oakland and moved to areas where housing is significantly cheaper. So what are some things we can do? The first thing I'm going to say that seems obvious, but we can't end homelessness just by housing the people who are currently homeless. The only way we're going to end homelessness is if we stop people entering homelessness. And the main way to do that is by affordable housing. We are way, way, way behind in affordable housing, and we fear that we'll fall further behind with the current administration. We clearly need a lot more affordable housing and not less. Some moments for optimism. In the last election, many cities and counties across um, California voted for affordable housing bonds including San Francisco and Alameda, who are, um, you know, voters voted to tax themselves to pay for affordable housing. I know in Alameda County, we are targeting 20% of the units for people who make less than 20% of the area median income. There are some statewide measures currently um, that just pass, some of which will pay for some forms of affordable housing. Others will make it easier for developers to build. And there is going to be a California-wide affordable housing bond on the 2018 ballot. Um, there is talk of whether we should uh, reform the mortgage, mortgage interest deduction. I like to say to people that I live in subsidized housing because I own my home, and I actually get a huge tax break on what I pay. And it seems like a little bit of perhaps not the best policy that I get a big tax break, and I basically am being given for my housing um, where many individuals who are homeless are getting no assistance at all. Um, other things that are um, really important are preventing evictions. In today's uh, uh, Chronicle, I read that San Francisco is actually considering providing a lawyer for in housing court for everybody who is at risk of eviction. New York just tried this last year. Um, we know that when people... Um, 
go up to become evicted. Many do have rights, but they're not able to access those rights. Um, the landlords often have a big, a big um, legal support, and the tenants usually don't. So San Francisco is talking about putting in um, the right to a lawyer in housing court. San Francisco has what's called just cause for rent control units, meaning you can't be kicked out for just any reason. You need to have um, sort of done something wrong, and it gives people some legal leverage, particularly if they have a lawyer to help them. And um, as I said, New York is experimenting with providing the right to counsel, and San Francisco is just starting to really talk about it. Um, emergency housing assistance. This was a study done in Chicago where there was a number you could call where you could get money if you were falling behind on your rent or your utilities, which are often a sign that you're about to lose your housing, you could get a one-time payment. And some economists realize that when people call the line, if they happen to call on a day that the place had money, you could get a, a grant for up to $1,500. And if you called the next day and they were out of money, you didn't get anything. So the economists actually compared the people who had the good luck to call on a day when they were giving out money to those who called on a day that they didn't. And they found that those who called when the assistance was available were 76% less likely to enter a shelter at six months, sort of speaking to the possibility of a one-time payment to keep people from falling behind on their rent and losing their housing. Because once people lose their housing, everything is much harder. Um, for those with new onset homelessness, we really need to focus on rehousing people quickly before their lives fall apart. There was a major national study of family homelessness that found that the thing that worked best, they compared a bunch of different options, including giving people a lot of social services and support, giving people um, shallow subsidies, so some help, but that would go away after a few years, figuring they would get their um, you know, be able to earn enough money to not need it, to just giving people a voucher that capped their, they, what they had to pay for housing at 30%, and then the government would pay the rest. Those are the rental subsidies perform much better than any other options, showing that basically if you can give people housing, you can give people so that you say your, your rent is capped at 30% of your income, you can actually keep people housed. We know, though, as I said, only one in four people currently gets those. For those with long-term homelessness and disabling conditions, you've probably heard of what we call permanent supportive housing. People often talk about how wonderful it was in Utah and the great Utah experiment. You'll be glad to know that Utah took San Francisco's model. This was a model that was very much um, grew out of San Francisco. We just fell behind because our rental housing is so expensive. But permanent supportive housing is subsidized housing, so you pay only 30% of your income, with either on-site or closely linked supportive services, things like drug and alcohol treatment, case management, vocational services, nursing and medical services, mental health services. The key to permanent supportive housing is the use of something called Housing First. Housing First means that people who experience chronic homelessness and have multiple disabling conditions can come into the housing and enter permanent supportive housing without being sober or without agreeing to take enter drug treatment or without agreeing to take mental health meds, that the idea is you start with unhoused and then you try to engage them in treatment. This has been shown to be very highly effective at keeping people housed, and in fact, it keeps people who had thought to be impossible to house housed. The only thing I would add, though, is that as a population is aging, this housing really needs to adapt their models to meet the needs of this population. So just some final thoughts. Homelessness is really reaching crisis proportions in this country, particularly in areas like California. 
The aging of the population really increases the urgency. The suffering amongst the population is immense, and their use of the healthcare system can be chaotic. While mental health and substance use disorders are really common, the underlying causes are really structural. This is really, at the end of the day, a problem of housing. Solutions will not be easy, but they really are doable, and we really need to match the solution to the problem. And I think with that, I'm going to stop. I'm going to thank my team who works on me with this. As you can see, it takes a small city to do studies like this. Um, leave you with my email address and my Twitter handle and take any questions that you might have. Great. So the question is, how important is it that the housing be close to where the jobs are? And the answer is, um, it is. I mean, it is quite important, obviously. What we see... Um, in the Bay Area is many folks who are not homeless are commuting two and three hours to their jobs. They're spending a lot of their time as well as their money commuting. I take care of a taxi driver, um, and I was, as I ask all of my patients, I was asking about his housing status, and he admitted to me that he's now living in his taxi. And I asked him, he's homeless now, and I asked him how that was going and where he can stay within where he can sleep. And he said, oh, I just sleep in the line at SFO. And I said, do the folks at SFO not hassle you? And he said, oh, no, there are a whole bunch of us. After the last flight comes in, we all line up and pretend we're going to take the next customer, but we're all sleeping there. And I said, is everyone homeless? And he said, well, about half of us are homeless, and half of us live in, like, Antioch or really far out, so that it, they're, like, it doesn't really pay for them to drive home for two and a half hours or whatever it takes and then drive back, so they are just sleeping in their cars. So I think at the end of the day, um, we're not going to, you know, sometimes when I give this talk, people say, why don't we just build housing in Wyoming? And I'm not quite sure what it is about Wyoming. It's like everyone asks me about Wyoming. Um, it's a beautiful place, I'm sure. But um, I do think, you know, one of the things that we've seen, particularly for these older adults, is that their roots are here. They built the city. Their church is here. We have many of our participants live in Stockton and take the bus home on Sundays to come to church. And it's pretty disorienting for people to move. Obviously, some of the answers, people are going to move to lower-cost areas, but if there aren't jobs in those lower-cost areas, we're not going to really solve the problem. So, um, so the question um, is a few-part question is, what is the role of UCSF in our excellent um, safety net system? Because it's true, we have amazing public hospitals, San Francisco General, where um, Margaret Dean and I work. We have the VA, where Bree works. Um, and uh, so the first thing to know is that those hospitals are staffed by physicians from UCSF. We are all employees of UCSF and paid for by... UCSF, and so UCSF provides the um, medical staffing at those institutions, and those institutions are integrated fully into UCSF. So we have these dual identities as physicians um, at San Francisco General and UCSF physicians, but we just happen to work at UCSF. Um, UCSF itself, UCSF Health, actually does provide a fair amount of um, safety net services. They um, take a lot of Medi-Cal, a lot of low-income patients, and they see a lot of um, homeless folks in their emergency department and throughout their hospital. But UCSF has this um, an agreement with the city and county to provide all medical services at San Francisco General. It's a little more complicated at the VA, but they provide the vast majority of medical services at the VA. Great. So the question is, um, how about people who hop between different programs as a means to be um, as a means to stay housed? So we, um, because we were trying to sort of make statements about the federal government and you know make at least um, 
reproducible statements. We use the federal definition of homelessness, and the federal definition of homelessness actually does include people who are in institutional settings if they don't have any other place to go. So if you are paying rent in your home, but then are in drug treatment, you're not considered homeless. But if you have no other place but the drug treatment facility, and in fact on being discharged from that will have no place to go, you do meet the criteria. Um, so we use sampling that was trying to capture people who were in that. And what we find is people do certainly do um, things like that, although they rarely make it through without a hiccup, without winding up in either the shelter system or the, um, or the streets at some point. Um, but certainly we have people who as partly because they're trying to treat their drug and alcohol use, but partially also as a strategy to, um, to be housed, are in fact going from um, different programs to different programs. The federal government um, now does recognize that those individuals meet criteria for homelessness if they really have no place to go when they're discharged. So the first question is that um, uh, this, uh, uh, you, you shared with us that you were recently in Des Moines, and in fact, it's not so easy to find housing in Des Moines. And, and that is the other part. I think in the Bay Area, we have this fantasy that like you can find housing anywhere. But sometimes in these rural areas, A, there isn't that much housing. And so it is, um, even if it, you know, it may not be that available, but then there are other costs that people might not take into account, like you need to have a car. There may not be public transportation and the gas prices and the heating prices. The other question, though, is what is going to happen to all the folks from Santa Rosa? And um, I think I am extremely worried about what's going to happen. I think some people, certainly at the lower ends of those economic sphere, are really at incredibly high risk. And we know that one of the ways that people become homeless are through natural disasters or other traumas. So this is replicating in Houston and in Santa Rosa and other parts of this country that have recently experienced massive natural disasters. And the answer is we really don't know. I mean, I think that we worry that though, that the Santa Rosa market was already ridiculously expensive. It's going to take them some time to rebuild. Many of those folks are going to be coming down to the Bay Area where we already are experiencing such a total housing crisis. And I think it's, I think, um, Folks from there who do get housed, it may wind up basically pushing other people further down the economic market out of housing. And then um, a lot of those folks will probably wind up unhoused, unfortunately. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.